Did you steal them? No, Your Majesty. Did you? No, Your Majesty. Did you steal them? No, Your Majesty. Majesty. Squidberry juice. I was so hungry. I didn't mean Off to. Off with his head. Off with his head. Off with his head. I don't know if you remember that movie or not. It's come a couple years ago, Alice in Wonderland. And that line in that movie, to me, just stuck out so much. I loved that line. It made me laugh every single time I came to it. And maybe this is showing the, the kid side of me of watching cartoons like that. It's not exactly a cartoon, but, but it was great to see. And, and it made me laugh every single time the Red Queen. I don't know if it's just because of her, her bulging head or what it was. But that actress, every time she said that line, off with his head... It made me just howl and giggle all the way through the movie. I completely lost track of what the storyline was. But for me, focusing on off with his head was just so, so darn funny. It's kind of twisted, though, if you really think about it. And, well, not really think about it. You don't have to think too hard. To think about the fact that I'm laughing at somebody, and many of you who are watching that movie, who had watched that movie or remembered it, you were laughing at that line, off with his head. Because the queen, no matter what happened, whether somebody stole a tart from her or if somebody was threatening to take over her entire kingdom, she would say, off with his head, off with her head, off with their heads at every turn. And it's twisted because really, there's nothing funny about a beheading, right? There's nothing funny at all. It's startling. It's shocking. It's supposed to rattle you a little bit. And yet, in this movie, they've made a whole joke about off with his head. I mean, in other TV shows or movies that you've seen before, any kind of beheading is a startling thing. For some of you who are Game of Thrones fans, you'll remember way back to season one. This is like 10 years ago now. Is that, it was like 10 years that this show has been on TV. And I began watching it. I remember watching this first season, season after season, or episode after episode. And the, the star of pretty much the first season was Ned Stark. And there was this threat to his life all the way through the, as the season progressed. And then finally, in the final, the final episode, there was this threat to Ned Stark's life, which... Uh, hopefully I'm not spoiling it for some of you who are, who are saving it to, you know, one day when the whole thing's over and you watch the whole thing. Hopefully I'm not spoiling it because it's 10 years old, all right? If I am, la, 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 and you'll be okay. So at the end of that last episode, there's this threat to his life. And I think to myself as I'm watching the episode, oh, they're not going to take his life. They're not. He's like the star of the show. And then, boom, off with his head. And you're just, your jaw just drops. They killed off the main character. How could they kill off the main character by beheading? Any kind of beheading in any kind of episode or show or movie is meant to be shocking. It's meant to jolt you. It's meant to, to make you think twice and say, what's going on? And the same thing should be felt or thought of when we come to the book of Mark. When all of a sudden, the author writes about the beheading of John the Baptist. If you're reading along, it's kind of weird and kind of strange because for the first five chapters, John is mentioned a little bit at the beginning, but then you don't talk about John for the next five chapters. In fact, there's no mention of him all of a sudden until John chapter 6. So why does the author all of a sudden talk about this beheading? Well, if you're following along in the book of John, or 
Mark, sorry, we're in Mark, right? We're in Mark. Uh, Mark talks about the cost of discipleship. And over and over again, the author invites the reader into what it means to follow Christ. That it's not easy. That when God calls you, when Jesus calls you to follow him, that there will be costs. There will be sacrifices. It's not going to be just riches and pleasure and comfort. In fact, many times, following Jesus is going to be hard. It's going to be difficult. And the author, Mark, emphasizes the point by talking about John who loses his life by beheading. It's supposed to be something that shocks you, that makes you think twice about what does it mean to follow Christ. In context, the early Christians and readers were probably in a time when it was not easy to be a Christian, where it was not easy to follow Christ. And so in context, for the first century readers, We know that they could relate to it. It was not easy to follow Jesus in the first century. Uh, We often talk about the different emperors and the oppression that Christians felt in the first century. And uh, at the time that Mark was written, it was probably written during the reign of Nero. Now, Nero was famous for many things. The Colosseum, where they would take Christians and feed them to lions, and that was entertainment. They go, oh, ha, ha, Christian, you know, food. Uh, Anyways, uh, but one of the other things that Nero was famous for, this painting is called, actually, the lights of Nero. All right, now you probably can't see it because it's maybe a little bit too far away, but if you Google it one day and you look up the lights of Nero and you look in the upper right side, it's called the lights of Nero and Nero was famous for this, was because he would tie Christians up, mount them on poles and light them on fire. And that's how he lit the streets of his city, the lights of Nero. The cost of discipleship was high. When we invite people to follow Jesus, there's a cost to it. It's not, just, it's not just forgiveness and blessing and, oh, how great the riches are. There is forgiveness and blessing in all these riches. But there's a true cost. And I don't know where you are this morning when you think about the cost of discipleship. I don't know what it means for you. And maybe, maybe that's the message that you need to hear this morning. And if that's what you need to hear this morning because of whatever's going on in your life, maybe exams are looming, professors have papers that are due, and you're, you're kind of stressed out about it, and you're feeling a little bit like, Does this really, is this what God's really called me to? Or, or other things are going on in your life where you feel like the cost of discipleship and following Jesus is high. If that's what you need to hear today, hear that. But can I take a little bit of a different angle on this passage? The cost of discipleship truly is high. But when we look again at this passage, a lot of things are happening. Now, in the book of Mark, if you read through this story, Herodias' daughter is brought in. It's it's, uh, it's the king's birthday. And Herod wants to have a festival, a, a big banquet, and he brings in the daughter of Herodias to dance in front of him. Now, I do not know anything about dance. I am the youngest of three boys. Uh, and so, and then I had two sons who they played sports and I'm not trying to be a gender thing, but I was just not around dance. I didn't understand dance. So when I had my daughter and all she wanted to do was dance, I, I didn't understand it. I don't know why, but she still just likes to dance. I don't know where she gets these moves from, but she just dances and dances and dances. And I don't know what kind of dance Herodias' daughter danced, but it was so impressive to the king. It was so, so impressive to the king. Now, mixing, did, my, did my son make an appearance already? He's like half naked. Did he, did, he show, did he show up? Anyways, so dances and dances and dances. And Herod is so impressed by the dance that he says to her, 
I will give you anything you want. Anything you want. Again, I don't understand dance, so I don't know what kind of dance this was. I'll give you anything you want, even up to half my kingdom. Now remember, this is the first century. So first century Jewish people are reading through scripture. The Christians are also reading through scripture. And they're reminded of festivals over and over again. And one of those festivals that was starting to take shape in the first century was the festival of Purim. And Purim, every single year, the Jewish people would gather and read through the book of Esther. And I don't know if you've ever read through the book of Esther. I haven't taken a biblical course on Esther yet. But if you ever read through the book of Esther, in the book of Esther is a queen who stands before a king. And not once, not twice, but three times the queen is asked, I'll give you anything, queen, even up to half my kingdom. And so when the author in Mark writes about Herodias' daughter being asked, even up to half my kingdom, lights, fireworks, crashes, cymbals, uh, Ken Michelle's guitar on distortion, everything is loud and blinking lights are flashing at you. Why? Because those words, even up to half my kingdom, all of a sudden rings a bell in your head. Hey, I've heard that before. I've heard that before. And sure enough, if you're a good Jew going through the first century, you'll have gone through Purim and you'll be reminded of Queen Esther's story, who again, not once, not twice, but three times is also asked, what do you want? I'll give you anything, even up to half my kingdom. The parallels are actually uncanny. Uh, Herodias' daughter is counseled by her mother. Queen Esther is counseled by her uncle in this story. I won't go through the the entire story of Queen Esther. Uh, The people of God in uh, Herodias' or sorry, the first century are under foreign rule and so is Queen Esther. They're under foreign rule. They've been taken captive and they no longer are a nation in themselves. And yet, all of a sudden, it takes a turn where Herodias' daughter, the counsel that she receives and the request she makes to the king is to seek personal revenge. Because John, the Baptist, has now told the king over and over again, you guys are living in sin. This, this, this woman that you've taken is, is your brother's wife. You should not be having her as your wife or, or your mistress. And so Herodias' daughter now seeks revenge when she's given that opportunity to stand before the king. In contrast, Queen Esther seeks mercy for her people. She says to the king after three requests, Save my people. Herodias' daughter, in fact, seeks to restore her reputation and her family's reputation, whereas Queen Esther risks her own reputation, risks her own life to try to find mercy for God's people. Now, on one hand, I wanted to take this message and say to you, well, the next time you're before the king, but I don't know when the next time you're before the king you will be. And I don't, know, I don't know who the king is for you. Maybe Justin Trudeau, maybe Justin Trudeau is not your king. Uh, maybe the president of Tyndale is the king. I don't know who, who the king is for you. Uh, maybe, maybe it is that opportunity that you and I will have at some point to be in front of somebody who has incredible power, who has incredible influence. What will you ask for? But on the other hand, I started thinking to myself, maybe it's not about that one opportunity when you're before a king, but maybe it's realizing the places of privilege that we have. Those incredible places of privilege that each and, you, each and, each and every one of us have before the king. The reality is, most of you who are here are Canadian citizens. 
Do you realize how much of a privilege it is to be a Canadian citizen? For some of you, you did nothing to earn that. You were just born in Canada. And not every country, but Canada is one of them, is where when you're born in that country, you become a citizen. There are many countries where that doesn't exist. You could be born in a certain country, but you still have to work your way, earn your way, show to why you should deserve citizenship in that country. How many of you speak English? Hopefully, most of you do. That's why you're understanding what I'm saying. The fact that you understand English, the fact that you can read English, the fact that you can communicate in English is a privilege. What are you doing with that? Most of you here, I'm probably going to assume all, but maybe I shouldn't assume, but probably 90% of you, have a high school diploma. Do you realize that having a high school diploma in our world is a place of privilege? Many of you here are studying to have your undergrad degree. Do you know how few people in this world actually have a university degree? Now I'm going to point out all the professors here. You all have masters and doctorates and doctorates and doctorates. You are in a place of privilege. About half of you here are males. You are in a place of privilege in this world. Now, the last time I said that in a sermon, I got some feedback on email saying, are you saying that it's better to be a male? That's not what I'm trying to say. I'm not trying to say that one is better than the other or anything like that. But in our world, average income, glass ceiling, it exists. And those of you who are male, which is about 50% of you here, are in a place of privilege. What are you doing with that? 60 years ago, an international student from Hong Kong, you know, went up to, uh, at his local church, uh, Elizabeth Hebb. Elizabeth Hebb was, was, a, was a Sunday school teacher, and this international student said to, to Miss Elizabeth, you know, I don't know exactly what his accent was, I'm not going to try to imitate that, whatever it is, and he said to her, uh, Miss, Miss Elizabeth, I'd really like to stay in this country, I'm, I'm just about to graduate, but, but when I graduate, my student visa is going to expire, and when my student visa expires, I'm going to have to go back to Hong Kong, and, and I kind of like it here in Canada. So, you know, uh, Elizabeth Hebb, she didn't really know what to do. She's just a, the, she was actually the Sunday school director in her lo- local church. And so she said, okay, well, you know, come with me. I'll, I'll bring you down to the local immigration office. I don't have any connections there. I don't know anybody there. But, but you know, I, I'll bring you down and see what we can do. And so Elizabeth Hebb brought this international student to the immigration office 60 years ago. This is 60 years ago. And, uh, and she said to the immigration officer, uh, uh, look, uh, sir, officer, uh, is there any way that this student uh, can stay in the country? Can you help him out? Can you find a way for him to have a a landed immigrant status and to work. And, and, and 60 years ago, this officer looked at the student, then looked at Elizabeth Hebb, looked back at the student, and looked back at Elizabeth Hebb. And she said to her, or he said to her, sorry, Miss Hebb, Lau, you know there's nothing I can do. You know that Chinese people, 60 years ago, Chinese people are not officially a welcome people in Canada. There's nothing I can do. He's going to have to finish his, his student visa and he's got to go back. And Elizabeth had looked again at the officer and said, is there anything, anything you can do? Come on, is there something you can do? Is there any way around this? And the officer kind of looked down and looked up at her and the officer said, now, you know what, Miss Hebb, I actually know who your husband is. 
He's actually the chancellor of McGill University, and he actually has been a researcher for the government for quite a few years. He helped out with World War II, and I kind of know who your husband is. So I'll tell you what, I'm not really supposed to do this, but if in the next two weeks, a company wants to hire this student, a company wants to hire him, he's not allowed to go and apply for a job because as an international student, he's not allowed to do that. If a company wants to hire the student in the next two weeks, I'll see what I can do. So Elizabeth Ebb left with this international student. They went away. I don't know what she did, but somehow she found this student a job. And she came back to the immigration office and said, hey, officer, look, look, I found him a job. There's this company that really wants to hire him as an engineer. I think he's an outstanding young person. He's been helping out at our church. I think he'll be a great asset to our country. The officer looked at her, looked at him, grabbed a big stamp. Welcome to the country. That international student was my father. When I think about that story, and I think about how close it was where my life would be radically different. Now, I'm not saying that living in Hong Kong would be bad, but I'm pretty happy in Canada. And my life would have been radically changed if it wasn't for somebody using her place of privilege to speak for someone who did not have a voice, who did not have opportunity, who did not have a place in our society to do more than simply go on day after day. What is your place of privilege? I don't know what it is, and I don't want to judge you just because you're a male, just because you happen to have gone through high school, just because you happen to have been born in Canada. But all of us here have places of privilege. What opportunities have you been given to advocate for others? What opportunities do you have at your disposal simply because you are who you are? You have blood. Do you realize you could give blood? Do you realize that pretty much none of you here actively do anything to make blood? And yet you could be giving it to help others. What risk might it have to your reputation or your face? What risk could there actually be to your reputation or face to sponsor a refugee? All it takes really is your signature to vouch for someone who doesn't have a voice. Is there an opportunity for the church, for Christians, for followers of Christ to shine the brightest in these opportunities? We're not just the marginalized, not just the lost, but those who don't have privilege are able to have believers, followers of Christ walk alongside them to give them voice. How many of us are just worried about our own reputations, our own stature, our own reputation, that we forget what it means to give voice to the lost, to give voice to those who are in need, that perhaps it's simply going to, to tutor young students who have difficulty in school. Perhaps it's bringing community to those new immigrants or even seniors who don't have any friends or close relationships and who are lonely in this world. What are those simple, simple things that you and I all have a place of privilege where we could love others? The passage ends with King Herod heard about this 
for Jesus' name had become well known. And some were saying, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead, and that is why miraculous powers are at work with him. I'd like to argue that for us to use our places of privilege, that miraculous things will happen where we could actually change the world. Let me pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, as we continue to worship, as we head and journey towards the cross, in this season of Lent, may we continue to examine ourselves, examine our lives, and as we deny ourselves different things or actions or items, may we be reminded, not simply of this small sacrifice that we've made, but may we be reminded of the places of privilege that each and every one of us here have. May we advocate for those who have no voice. May we walk alongside those who have no citizenship or belonging or community. May we follow Christ in everything that we do. And when we are before the King in our places of privilege, may we hear the stories of John the Baptist and of Christ in our lives. And now as God's chosen people, may you go from this place pursuing Christ in all areas of your life. And all of God's people said in Jesus' name, amen. God bless you.